This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Elaine Pearson. Elaine is Asia Director at Human Rights Watch. She joined me to talk about her new memoir titled Chasing Wrongs and Rights, My Experience Defending Human Rights Around the World. Elaine shares some of the most fascinating stories from her memoir, covering regions from Indonesia to the Philippines and beyond. And I'm very, very pleased to welcome back onto the program Elaine Pearson, who is Asia Director for Human Rights Watch. And Elaine, I believe, has had a whole range of roles in her lifetime already, as we can read in the book that we're about to discuss, the book being Chasing Wrongs and Rights, A Personal Journey of Fighting for Justice Around the World, which Elaine has written and which is released tomorrow. It's out through Simon and Schuster. And what I really loved about this book is that clearly it highlights just how many different types of human rights issues there are across the world. And as Elaine points out in this book, it's not just about some of those most shocking atrocities, these kind of things that we would class as crimes against humanity or war crimes, but there are also more hidden human rights abuses that Elaine deals with in this book as well. And she highlights these human rights issues through her journey, the things that she has been fighting for and fighting against, depending on the situation. She's clearly travelled around the globe to do so, but it's really, really lovely to get to speak with Elaine now about her book. So I'm really, really glad to welcome Elaine onto the show. And thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today, Elaine. Oh, thanks, Amy. Thanks for that lovely intro. It's great to have you back on. And obviously, I know many people listening on Triple R will have heard someone from Human Rights Watch because there are so many different issues that come up on a daily basis that Human Rights Watch across the world monitors, reports on, researches and deals with. Certainly, that's been the case for this show. I wanted to start with the beginning of the book because you talk about growing up in Australia you say that you were born in Blacktown in the western suburbs of Sydney to a white British father from South London and an ethnic Chinese mother from Singapore. And you reflect on your time growing up. And I wondered if we could perhaps start there and your formative years growing up, especially in Australia, in that period, in that area. We're here in Melbourne, so obviously not up in Sydney. But I wondered if you could talk to us about those early years and what you reflected on in terms of your drive and interest in human rights? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I guess going back to growing up um, in Blacktown, I lived there for the first six years of my life. And Blacktown today is very different to how it looked, you know, in the mid-1970s when, you know, I was born and, and growing up. Uh, back then, I think we were one of the, you know, few Asian families on the street, my mother from um, Singapore, um, and most of the families around us, you know, were white Australian families or immigrants who'd come from, you know, Greece or, or Italy. And so there definitely was, for me, I guess from that early age, you know, I guess a bit of a feeling of difference uh, being mixed race. I feel like today, you know, many um, of my friends' kids are, are mixed race and it's quite common now in Australia. But back then, I guess it was quite unusual. And so, you know, I think part of my political awakening was also, you know, as a result of some racism that I experienced. You know, I think back then in the 70s, 
There was a very strong assimilation culture in Australia, particularly in those neighbourhoods where things like, you know, my mother didn't teach me um, the dialect that she grew up speaking at home in Singapore and which my grandparents and, you know, my mother's side of the family spoke because she didn't want me to be different. She wanted me to be, you know, like other Australian kids. And so, you know, much later on, I really regretted that in many ways because I found that, you know, much of my career ended up taking me to Southeast Asia, places where there are many migrants from China. Um, And certainly it would have been nice to be able to connect with some of those stories, you know, particularly on my mother's side of the family in a more direct way. But it really was quite, I guess, a, a different time. Mm. You reference Pauline Hanson's maiden speech to Parliament in 1996, which many people will remember. She said some absolutely horrific things in it, like, as you quote in the book, I believe we are in danger of being swamped by Asians. And your response to that in the book, it certainly made a lot of sense to me. You say that something inside me snapped. As someone who was Asian and whose family had tried desperately hard to assimilate, too hard in retrospect, those words felt like a kick in the guts and I took it personally. And that totally makes sense as to why you would feel that way. But it seems that even now, although things have changed, as you say, it still is and has been difficult for people, whether they're of Asian background or European background in those early days, or even more recently of Middle Eastern background, for example, or African background, to be part of the broader society to feel like they belong because there is still so many issues domestically in Australia, human rights abuses and issues in Australia that certainly pertain to people from either a minority background or people of First Nations background. And you do highlight those in the book as well. So I felt that, you know, it was really great to see that as you say, when you were Australia Director of Human Rights Watch, you wanted to make sure that there was enough focus on Australia as much as there was internationally and in the Asia-Pacific region. Absolutely. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of shocking and a bit sad that, yes, I mean, Pauline Hanson was definitely a part of my political awakening back then, you know, in the mid-90s when she first came to Parliament. And here we are, and she's back again in the Parliament And, you know, maybe, you know, her target of sort of her racist xenophobic policies is somewhat different, but she's still spouting those same racist xenophobic policies. And I think, you know, racism, the conversation about racism is very important because it's really at the heart of why so many human rights violations happen in Australia and around the world. You know, it really is this feature that justifies why some people can be treated differently or why certain types of abuses, you know, can be tolerated against a certain group because they look different, because they might have a different religion. And so that's something that I really wanted to explore in the book. And I felt like it just came up time and again, whether it was looking at the treatment of, you know, migrant workers um, in Thailand or victims of trafficking in Europe, or indeed whether it was looking at, you know, war crimes against Tamils in Sri Lanka or the treatment of our own Indigenous First Nations uh, Australians here and the over-incarceration of Indigenous Australians. So I really sort of covered, I guess, yeah, a broad spectrum of those issues. And coming back to Australia, You know, initially when Human Rights Watch first talked about um, setting up an office here, they very much thought, well, let's focus on issues that are happening in the region that are maybe not getting enough attention in the Australian media. So, you know, things that are happening in China or Indonesia, uh, Myanmar. 
But I felt that, you know, while clearly that was important to give a voice to those issues that are happening, you know, on Australia's doorstep, at the same time, Human Rights Watch would not be taken seriously if we didn't also address the very serious human rights violations that are taking place in Australia by the Australian government. And so one of the first areas that I explored was, you know, really looking at the treatment of asylum seekers offshore. So I visited Manus Island twice in my capacity as Australia Director at Human Rights Watch. You say in the early parts of your book that you had a role at the world's oldest international human rights organisation, which was Anti-Slavery International, originally founded as the Anti-Slavery Society in 1839, which was established to combat the transatlantic slave trade. And some of these early chapters are addressing human rights abuses and issues such as slavery and human trafficking. And these issues are clearly issues today. They're not issues of the past. But I wondered if you could take us through those early years when you were looking at those issues, especially around slavery and human trafficking, because it clearly took you to different places in the world, including Amsterdam, as you open in one of those chapters. And you talk about this kind of confronting moment being in the red light district in Amsterdam. Could you take us through those issues that you were focused on early on in your career and what experiences stood out for you in terms of the ways that they highlighted the complexities of human trafficking and slavery? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's really how I started my career, I guess, as a human rights activist. And in many ways, you know, it was a matter for me of, I guess, being the right place, right time. So I started working for a small, scrappy NGO based in Bangkok, Thailand. And as one of sort of my first jobs was they sent me to Geneva to a meeting that was taking place at the United Nations. It was a meeting of the UN Working Group on Contemporary Forms of Slavery. And, you know, coming from Perth as a 23-year-old, I met the most diverse bunch of women and people that I'd ever met in my life. I met sex workers from India, from Calcutta, sex workers from New York, academics from Europe and Canada. I met uh, domestic workers who were heading up unions in Bolivia. And all of these women basically were laying out the case about why trafficking was, you know, a problem of, of human rights violations and why when someone is initially rescued from their trafficking situation, the problem isn't over then because actually often their rights are continue to be violated by police, by immigration officials who, you know, sometimes criminalise them for the work that they've done as sex workers. You know, in many countries, sex work is still illegal or indeed because they're treated as illegal immigrants. And so a lot of the work that I did in those early years was really around documenting and advocating on those experiences. And I think one of the early lessons I learnt, um, certainly from that first meeting in Geneva, was how important it is to really sort of amplify the voices of people who have lived experience of human rights violations and really to ensure that their voices are front and centre of any of any policy or program that is being done to address those issues. My work then took me to places like Europe, as you said, you know, I found myself, you know, at one point, you know, sitting in a window in a, you know, in the red light district of Amsterdam with the brothel owner, you know, patiently explaining to me, you know, why this situation was much safer for women because it was legal and there was much more transparency and visibility. And I remember at one point he said to me, just sit in the window, you know, see what it feels like. And he just like left me in there. 
And I just sat there with this moment of sort of panic and fear. And at one point, you know, someone, a man sort of walked across the street, looked up into the window and I was like, okay, I'm done now. And I jumped off the chair. And I think he was just probably surprised to see someone fully clothed sitting in the window in the Mm -hmm. middle of the day. But it also just gave me, you know, that impression of like, how difficult it is, particularly for sex workers who are coming from countries like Nigeria to Europe and how easy it can be for women like that to be trafficked. And traveling to Nigeria, traveling to Nepal, to the countries of origin where a lot of these women have have come from also made me understand their experiences on the other end. So, you know, I remember seeing, you know, women in the police station in Lagos and, you know, they were being held in a large holding centre. You know, they really were being treated like criminals. There was no separation from between like the madams who were profiting off the exploitation and the people who were the victims of that exploitation. So it also made me realise that, you know, police corruption and, you know, a number of these issues are really also at the heart of addressing problems like human trafficking. That was also something that brought it home. You were describing after being in the red light district, being taken to the tipple zone and these cars that were driving around in a pickup loop and you were reflecting on the demographics, the women who were there and the situations that they found themselves in. And as you've just referenced there, you say several of the women were African, most likely from Nigeria. There were also women from former Soviet bloc countries like Moldova and that these were situations where women who didn't have papers, who couldn't work in the red light district with those quote-unquote legal arrangements, were then put in this other circumstance or situation where they were performing sex work in cars. And I just was reflecting on that thinking how difficult it must be to not only just highlight the complexity of a situation like that and the power imbalances that exist, but also the the circumstances of their home countries, the reasons why they are there doing that work and the agreements that they enter into, depending on the country that they're from, to even get to another country to do that work. And you do highlight that as well, that especially in countries from the continent of Africa, for example, there are some situations where those women have made this blood pact or agreement of what they're going to do and give back to the person who's trafficked them or brought them across to these European countries. And I wondered if you could address that, you know, some of the real complexities and sensitivities that arise and have arisen when working in that particular field. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, I think, you know, you you know, I visited, it's known as the tipple zone, I guess, the sort of safe space um, for women to work on the street, you know, which in many ways, you know, felt, you know, it's quite discomforting to see, you know, women, you know, working on the street that way. But then I did realise, look, this is a safe space. It's a space that's monitored. You know, this is an attempt to provide sort of some level of protection to women. The fact that there was like, a centre where women could go and, you know, get warm. There was healthcare workers who could provide advice, who could also provide, you know, referrals to services, meant that that existed. I then went, you know, to Italy and I saw Nigerian women, you know, really just on the sides of highways on the street. And there, there was absolutely zero level of protection. And subsequently, you know, we interviewed, you know, a number of uh, women who'd gotten out of their situation. In some cases, women told us that it was actually clients who had kind of taken pity on them, who had helped them to escape, had like taken them to a shelter. 
And I think that also, you know, demonstrates the complexity of these issues that, you know, it's not like, you know, clients are necessarily always these um, exploiters, but sometimes they also do, you know, want to try and address some of the issues affecting women. And then, you know, in, in going back to Nigeria, you really saw, you know, one, I guess, the incredible, you know, levels of poverty, particularly in the state, Edo state, where many trafficking victims come from. But then also the power of the juju, they call it, you know, which is basically these blood packs that women and girls go through. So it's basically, you know, a process at a shrine where they agree to pay back huge sums of money um, to their madame to pay for the travel. And then as a result, you know, they are really convinced that if they dare to escape or if they dare to leave their situation, that they will face negative consequences, that something bad will happen to them or something bad will happen to family members as a result. And so you could really see that very clearly in Nigeria. And, you know, when I was there, there were very few government services for these women. The only services that really existed were those that were being provided um, by religious orders. And, you know, you've got to see that for a lot of women who've been working on the street, you know, in a place like Italy or the Netherlands for several years, for them to suddenly return to Nigeria and be taken care of by an order of nuns, you know, it was very difficult for them to adjust to that. And many of them, they didn't want to adjust to that. So, you know, again, it was like, okay, well, how can services best be provided to meet the needs of women without necessarily like, you know, subjecting them to these very well-meaning, but sometimes paternalistic types of structures you know, which ultimately, you know, might not be successful because you're also, you know, providing someone with a stay in a, yeah, in a shelter, which, you know, sometimes was more akin to a detention centre than than really, you know, a shelter where they could, you know, recover from their situation. Yeah. It's really, really interesting to be taken through so many different situations in, in these different countries. I know, of course, that there would be many overarching themes or similarities, but Every chapter has a different circumstance, a different country, and you talk about that situation, you move into another section of the book on the Asian region where we're looking at places like Sri Lanka, the Philippines, for example, Indonesia. And I was really interested, especially in the Philippines chapter, because this was a time that you're talking about where there was a newly elected president, President Duterte, who I know many will have heard of and be familiar with. And there've been many human rights issues in the Philippines, but you reflect on some of the issues that Human Rights Watch had taken up, including extrajudicial killings. Human Rights Watch had released a report in 2007 called Scared Silent Impunity for Extrajudicial Killings in the Philippines, which was looking at executions of left-leaning political activists by the military. So there was clearly a history of extrajudicial killings there, and you said you had started to become familiar with that. I wonder if you could take us through some of the things that you observed, especially about the Philippines, that you take us through in this chapter yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's funny to sort of reflect back on these things, but, you know, back in 2009, on one of my visits to the Philippines, I visited the island of Mindanao, uh, which, you know, was known as, I guess, quite a sort of lawless island where a number of sort of armed groups and um, terrorist groups operated, you know, in some areas quite in the open. 
But the one city where they didn't, you know, have such a stronghold was the city of Davao. And that's because the mayor of that city, you know, effectively had run a very strong law and order campaign, which included uh, rumours of a death squad that was involved in the killing of criminal suspects, drug users and so on. And the mayor at that time was Rodrigo Duterte, who later, you know, went on to become the president of the Philippines. So I testified in Davao City at a human rights hearing brought by the Human Rights Commission of the Philippines about the existence of these death squads and the interviews that Human Rights Watch had done disclosing a pattern of involvement and complicity of local government officials and also of police in Davao. And, you know, this hearing was actually led by a very tenacious uh, human rights lawyer, Leila Delima. She went on to become the justice minister of the Philippines. And when Duterte became president, you know, we never envisaged that he would take nationwide uh, this strategy of killing criminal suspects and people using drugs, you know, as, you know, a, a tactic in his so-called war on drugs. And that indeed happened. And Leila de Lima um, was one of the few government critics at that stage. She was a senator. She right now is sitting in police custody. She's been in jail for more than four years because of her outspoken criticism of Duterte's policies. And so, you know, part of writing the book, I also wanted to shine a spotlight on the very brave, tenacious and courageous human rights defenders in countries like the Philippines who pay a very heavy price for their activism. Obviously, she's not the only one. There's also Maria Ressa, who won the Nobel Prize recently. But we're really seeing an all-out assault in many countries in Asia against journalists, against civil society leaders, against government critics who dare to speak up against these authoritarian regimes that, you know, literally in the Philippines case, you know, are, are getting away with murder. Yeah, obviously this is part of a broader picture as we've referenced at the start of the book. You say in the middle of the book that what you liked about Human Rights Watch is that not only were you investing time and energy in addressing atrocities like these extrajudicial killings, but also more hidden violations that affected a substantial portion of the population and which left unchecked opened the door to more abuses. And what is such an interesting case study here is also the one in literally our closest neighbour, Indonesia, the title being Controlling What Women Wear in Indonesia, and I really found that chapter so interesting because there were many steps along the journey in the issue that was being addressed. It wasn't just kind of a, a here's one solution that we fight for. There was a lot of back and forth and, um, you know, making progress and then losing that progress and then having to regroup and trying to support the voices of women in Indonesia and not kind of coming in as being a replacement for their voice, but supporting them and enabling them to be able to express their anguish, like what what has made them really upset about being forced to wear religious headwear, you know, something that should be a choice, a personal choice, not something that's enforced. And you use this chapter to highlight a specific region of Indonesia that brought in some very, very draconian and strict rules about religious headwear. Could you take us through that case? One of the most striking quotes that you have out of this book is, we keep hearing these worn out talking points from Western political leaders when they talk about Indonesia as being the model Muslim democracy, a model of religious tolerance. But because Indonesia is such a large country, the situation isn't the same for women across the entire span of Indonesia. 
Exactly. I mean, it's a cliche, right? Like it's easy for, you know, visiting world leaders and foreign ministers to trot out these talking points. But in reality, what we have seen in Indonesia, particularly since the you know period of Suharto, as there's been this sort of gradual opening up, obviously that's been good you know, for media, for civil society, but it also means for some of those groups that may be sort of religious extremist groups, they've also been able to sort of find their voice. And so in a way, it was kind of like, you know, the genie coming out of the bottle in terms of all of these groups really jostling for space in a newly democratized Indonesia. And what we've seen as a result is that some of those uh, Islamist groups have been quite successful in resulting in sort of increasing restrictions on women. And it always starts with dress codes. So it starts with requiring women and girls to wear the hijab or the jilbab, as they call it in Indonesia. But then pretty quickly it can turn into things like, oh, stopping women from straddling motorcycles as they have, you know, that law in place in, you know, some parts of Aceh. It then becomes curfews for women, you know, against going out at dark. So, you know, we start to see this sort of creeping Shariaization, I guess, across the country. And I visited West Sumatra which is not Aceh, so they don't, you know, necessarily have the permission to implement Sharia law. But we saw how these uh, rules were being applied, even in terms of basic things like the school uniform. And so, you know, at public schools, you ended up with this very perverse situation where even Catholic and Christian schoolgirls who were going to school were being required to wear the jilbab as part of the school uniform. And, you know, I think also the Indonesia chapter, you know, it really shows the the power of social media in a country like Indonesia. So you had this, you know, brave father of a daughter, you know, of a Christian family who basically went to the school, live streamed on Facebook the conversation that he had with the principal because he complained about his daughter having to wear the jilbab. And those comments really went viral and really sparked an important conversation in Indonesia. And I think a lot of Indonesians, particularly in Jakarta, you know, were quite shocked to find that this was happening at the local level in so many provinces that were, you know, more conservative religiously. But the battle isn't over. I mean, we're still seeing this battle between the central government and then, you know, these forces at the local level that have been quite successful in pushing for restrictions on women's rights. Indeed. And part of that issue, you say you realised through your interviews about the impact of the Jilbab decrees was that you realised there was also this practice of forced virginity testing in the police and military, which is, as you say, it really shocked you. You had to kind mm. of go back and say, is this really still happening? Is this something that is going on right now? And that means that, you know, when you were uncovering one human rights issue, you're starting to find others. Well, that's right. And I mean, it's never sort of a very clear um, trajectory. But in that case, you know, the interviews that we did where women started to open up to us about these experiences, then led them to open up to us about experiences of forced virginity testing as a requirement to get into the police force. And, you know, I'd heard of forced virginity testing in some countries like Afghanistan, like Pakistan, particularly, you know, where young women are are raped. But I had never heard of it as a requirement to get into the security forces. And as a result of us exposing this issue, and my colleague Andreas Hasono, our Indonesia researcher, really worked diligently on this, gathering cases, working with Indonesian women's rights groups for years. Now the military, actually just earlier this year, has issued an order to stop any virginity testing of new recruits, 
and the police also likewise have issued that order. So it does show that, you know, through detailed investigations and exposing these issues to the broader public, it can result in, you know, very important policy change. And, you know, so many women and girls um, were involved in that campaign, were quietly lobbying behind the scenes, were, you know, helping us to address these issues. You know, initially, some of them didn't want to come forward publicly, but later, you know, women, you know, really wanted to, to talk about this. And I think, you know, that's also an important part of the book is also the extent to which victims and survivors, you know, really start to organise themselves through the experience of having suffered human rights violations, but also in terms of finding the solutions to address these problems. Yeah. And that's what I loved about this book is highlighting your role, Human Rights Watch's role, and how it's working in and within communities to find those solutions, um, but also to create more transparency and momentum around these campaigns and these issues. Elaine, we've run out of time, but there's much more to discuss. And there's a whole lot more in this book, Chasing Wrongs and Rights. I just want to say a big thank you today for coming onto the show and also for writing this book and giving us an insight into some of these issues at that firsthand level. Oh, thanks so much, Amy. I've just been chatting with Asia Director for Human Rights Watch, Elaine Pearson, and we've been talking about her new book through Simon & Schuster, Chasing Wrongs and Rights, A Personal Journey of Fighting for Justice Around the World. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.